God is a generous God. And discipleship is our attempt to understand and implement the application of God's character into our lives so that we reflect the image of Christ. You might be interested to know that millennials believe that imitating Christ and looking like and appearing like and sounding like Christ, six out of a 10 agree that that is the number one charge in a Christian's life, above employment, above marriage, above most of the other things that we consider value. Millennials believe that looking like and acting like Jesus is one of the most important things they can do with their life. If God is a generous God, and we are trying to be like God, not to be God, but to reflect his image and his love and his care for mankind, then it is incumbent upon us to be generous. Generosity is an issue of discipleship. It is not an issue of personal finances. It is not an issue of personal economy. But most of us, particularly I think the older generations, we automatically go. When we talk about generosity, we think in terms of our budgets and our contributions. But it's our lifestyle. And our lifestyle is our discipleship. It is what makes us look like Jesus. What characterizes us, what clarifies and makes it obvious that we are a follower of Jesus. And what that is, is having a generous heart, being an open-handed person in whatever sphere you're challenged or have the opportunity to be generous. And so this whole issue of generosity is a discipleship issue. You already understand, you probably have a basic knowledge as a Christian If you're not a Christian yet, you haven't made that decision yet, it's reasonable to look at and understand and inquire about the expectations of being a Christian. And normally we fall out on, you know, the top three, top four things that we've been told all of our lives as Christians. If you want to be a good disciple of Jesus, you read your Bible. You want to be a good disciple of Jesus, you pray. You want to be a good disciple of Jesus, you want to be a good follower of Jesus, you share your faith. Now, all of this is valid. You want to be a good disciple of Jesus? You attend worship. You're involved in corporate worship together with other believers and corporate study with other believers. These are the things I was taught when I became a new believer. And these are the things I teach new believers. But if you want to be like Jesus, you're going to have to master the area of generosity. You cannot look like, act like Jesus and be a stingy person. It's inconceivable. It's just simply not correct. Because there is no greater example of generosity than God himself. And if I want to look like Jesus, I need to wrestle with and I need to understand the discipleship aspect of being a generous person. I am only a follower of Christ because of the immense generosity of God who gave his son so that my sins could be forgiven and so that my life could be secure which is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And says, that's why I want to give you these caveats to, to think through this and understand this is a discipleship issue. And in, in chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, is a beautiful example of how this is a discipleship issue. Everything we look at in verse 8 through 15 is in the context of giving an offering, but the emphasis that Paul is making is the character of the church at Corinth. And so he talks about 
security and how we're secure in Christ and how a generous heart is a secure heart. In verse 8, he says, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, and now catch this, in my Bible, it's highlighted, always having everything you need. Now, we're talking about security. We're not talking about promotion or, or achievement. We're not, we're not talking about those things at this moment. This does not mean you don't have to work. It doesn't mean you can sit back. In fact, Paul will tell the church in Thessalonica, a completely different church, but in that similar region, he'll tell them, you know what, if people aren't working, let them go hungry. Because you are called by God to labor. That, we find that in Genesis chapter 1. And we find it lived out in Adam in the very beginning. Our task before sin was to labor, to work, to manage this world. That's what God asked Adam and Eve to do. The difference before sin and after sin is before sin, it was always going to be a joy. After sin, it was going to be hard and it was going to be painful. So you, you have that option this week at work. You can look at the day and it's a great day and you say, hey, this is, this is, this is pre, pre-fall of man. I am so happy to be working in, at this company, doing this activity, and, and knowing that this is a, a valuable thing, and I'm, I'm just like Adam and Eve in the garden. I'm managing this world. If it's a really bad day, you can say, dang it, if Eve hadn't led Adam astray, this job wouldn't be so hard. I'm, I'm kidding. Adam would have gone astray eventually on his own, but it just happened faster because of his wife. Um, but, you know... <laughs> I mean, it's just biblical truth, not necessarily one you should apply into your life today. It's, work is a good thing, but here's the, here's the issue. Paul's addressing security. Work or no work, depending on your circumstance and situation, you're still secure. Enough or not enough, you're still secure. Fulfillment or no fulfillment, you're still secure because we are believers in Christ and we are secure in him. God is able to make every grace, every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need. Now, I'll be the first to admit that sometimes my definition of that may differ from God's. And we have that conversation every once in a while. It's like, Lord... You know, I know I've got, I'm, I'm paying bills. I'm making things work. I know, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, but I really wanted to do it this way. You know, we all have those conversations and we work through. But again, this is a discipleship issue. We are secure, not because of what we've accomplished, but because of what God has accomplished in Christ so that we may excel in every good work. And he quotes back to the Psalms, describing the very nature, again, of God's generosity. He distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, now the one who provides seed for the sower, bread for food, will also provide and multiply your seed, your increase of harvest of your righteousness, because it's Christ's righteousness in us. A generous heart is a secure heart. It's a grateful heart. And this is discipleship again. At no point in this does it really tell us how much to give or what to give and and how to give and what's the best way to give. It tells us who we are as followers of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, generous hearts are grateful hearts. 
You will be enriched in every way, he says in verse 11, for all generosity, which, now just excerpt that out for just a second and say just that portion of the sentence. Generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God. So Paul is telling the church at Corinth, our worldly perspective, our secular perspective is that generosity, giving away resource, whatever that resource is, will create anxiety because I've got bills to pay and I've got, I've, I feel like my time is so stretched already. And Paul's saying it's just the opposite. When you finally break through in your discipleship and you finally become a follower of Jesus that has a generous heart, that generosity produces thanksgiving. It produces gratitude. It gives us a reason, as Pastor Josh said during worship, it gives us a reason to be thankful, not because we have a holiday coming up, but because every day we stop and realize what God has done for us. Just prior to the service, I had a conversation with a couple of our young kids who just come from Bible study, and we were talking about what they had learned in Bible study and what they remembered from their lesson this morning in Bible study, which was about Abraham in the book of Genesis and his son Isaac, when, when God called Abraham to do what seems really unreasonable in terms of generosity, to give up his son, to, to literally sacrifice his son. Now, if you're not familiar with Christianity, not familiar with the Bible, let me tell you, the Bible strongly condemns human sacrifice. It condemns human death of all types and always in favor of life. But in this case, the test was did Abraham as a disciple, did Abraham as a follower of God and the Messiah, did he have the generous heart to give up his only son? And he did. In fact, he's in the very last stages of that when God says stop. And tangled up, and this, this is the way the kids described it, tangled up in the bushes was a ram. He didn't have to sacrifice his son because God provided it. You talk about thanksgiving, you talk about a heart for worship, you come walking down off the mountain thinking you were giving up your son only to find out that God provided once again in a way that you can't even grasp or understand or articulate. You're a happy, thankful, grateful person. Generosity creates gratefulness. Generosity inspires. Look at verse 13. Because of the proof of, by this ministry, in this case, it's the offering that they're taking, they will glorify God. The people receiving the benefit of this offering, the people receiving the benefit of the generosity are going to glorify God. Because of your obedient confession, he says, in the gospel, the good news, that's the message of hope that's found in Jesus, because your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone, we inspire people. We inspire them specifically to have a relationship with God. One of the greatest testimonies of the validity of our faith is our generosity. How can you possibly be so generous? How, how can you even consider walking into a new year, walking into 2022 and being a generous person when all economic indicators right now are negative? We've got a stock market that's fluctuating almost every day. We have a job market that's gone completely crazy. We have a government that's spending out of control and knows nothing about generosity, but only about manipulation. Generosity and manipulation, by the way, are not the same thing. 
How, how can we possibly look for inspiration? How can we possibly be generous? Because our generosity was never based on our circumstance, because our faith is never based on our circumstance, because it's a bad week doesn't mean I don't have faith, because horrible things are happening in my life, because a tragic accident took somebody I love. None of that stuff does anything to invalidate our faith. In fact, the harder the moment, the more valid our faith becomes. The harder it is to be generous, the more you embrace it, the more your faith becomes obvious. Why am I a generous person? Not me specifically, but rhetorically. Because Jesus changed my life. I will say this specifically. I was not generous before Jesus. I was a master of manipulation before Jesus. After Jesus, I just get a kick out of being generous because I like being like Jesus and it inspires people. It encourages them. It strengthens them. And in one of the deepest areas of discipleship, it's catalytic. So a generous heart is a catalytic heart. And as they pray on your behalf, verse 14. Now again, he's talking about the people in Jerusalem who will be receiving the offering that the church of Corinth is taking. As they pray on your behalf, they will have a deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. I love this verse for two things. It, it encourages me to think that when I'm generous, it causes people to pray. We talk all the time. Prayer was one of the most difficult things to get anybody to do. We've got a group right now praying for revival, and, and they average anywhere from five to eight people on Wednesday nights because getting together to pray is one of the hardest things for Christians to do. I know it doesn't make sense. I'm not even going to explain it because I don't have enough time to go off on that tangent. Let me just simply say it's even harder to get pastors together to pray. And so somehow being on the occupational side of this discipleship equation doesn't change it. But now I'm listening to Paul say, you know what? If you want people to pray, be generous. We want a praying church, be a generous church. Because then when we see God move, and I think this is why Paul is saying this, when we see God move, then we just want to pray more. When God answers a prayer, do you suddenly say, you know what, you answered that prayer, I'm not going to ask for anymore. No, not with, that's not how it works with me. When God answers a prayer in my life, I start thinking about all the other things I should have been praying for. And I remember what the Bible says in the book of James, that a lot of times you don't have what you're asking for because you never asked for it. And so suddenly when prayer gets answered, it just makes me want to pray more. And that's all Paul's saying. When prayer gets answered, it's catalytic and other people want to pray and generosity creates, it is that catalyst for that changed heart that makes it possible to be generous because now you have a deeper affection for the people that have been generous. I'm guessing at this moment, if I just simply say this, everybody online, everybody here in the house, everybody will think of someone. Can you remember at some point in time when somebody did something exceedingly generous for you? And I'm guessing the answer is unanimously yes. And I'm going to ask you to say what it is. But generosity makes an impact. And that generosity makes an impact and it causes us to care more and to be grateful more for those people and to interact more for those people, to pray for those people. And here's the really cool part of the generosity. It doesn't bring attention to us. It brings attention to God. The reason they're praying and the reason they have deep affection in this verse is because of the surpassing grace of God in us. We just show Jesus to somebody. 
And then I love how Paul summarizes this whole section as he's writing. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is what I call a centered heart. Now there's some academic speculation as to what Paul is referring to because he doesn't specify what the indescribable gift is. But I'm guessing the vast, <clears throat> the vast majority of us <clears throat> would excuse me, I think we would agree with where, hang on. It's what happens when you start talking too fast. Racing against the time and racing against lunch all at the same time. And then being kind of passionate and excited about it, it gets all choked up. Literally, most scholars agree probably what you thought the instant I read that. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. <clears throat> I'm guessing the overwhelming majority of us thought of Jesus. Jesus is that gift. Jesus is that gift, and we're thankful for it. It centers us. And I got thinking about all the activities that I love to either do or I love to watch and how important it is to be centered. As a young boy learning how to rock climb, I couldn't tell you how many times my dad had to tell me, lean out from the rock. Thank you, Josh. This one's used. I hope it came from my chair. <laughs> Repurpose your generosity. One of the biggest mistakes you make when you're rock climbing is you have a tendency because there's anxiety to hug the, the rock face, which shifts your center of gravity the wrong direction. Now you're pushing your feet out from underneath you. You actually need to, and you watch a video of, of skilled or professional climbers, they always lean out from the rock so that then that center of gravity shifts and your feet are pushing into the rock face. We just finished a phenomenal baseball season here in Houston. Have you ever watched how much time a baseball player takes? The, I can't even imitate it because I'm no good at baseball. But and they sit there and they move and they prance and they, they kick. And, you know, even, a, even, even the pitcher does the same thing back and forth and rocking the base. I mean, you've you got to be an Astros fan to even understand. So if you, you're going, why is everybody laughing? Don't worry about it. Um, you know, golfers? Golfers are even worse. You ever watch a guy line up to hit off the hit hit off the tee, and his ball's sitting still. I mean, so, I mean, football players. I mean, it's the same thing. You gotta get it in your stance. Center our lives, and centering our lives means we're thankful for Jesus. Matter of fact, I love watching football players. I love, like most of you, when the action starts to happen and the quarterback goes back and he's either going to go for a run or he's going to go for a pass, whatever his activities are. And what I love about that moment is everything that's about to happen actually isn't about the quarterback. It's about the offensive line. One of my favorite quarterbacks bought all of his O-line about five or six years ago, brand new, very nice, over and under shotguns and took them to the range and taught them how to shoot with their shotguns because he was just thankful for his O-line because his security was in that O-line. We have the perfect offensive line as Christians. And it's called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can do generosity. We can do that. It may be hard at first, but it's like every aspect of discipleship. We make a decision 
to purpose our heart to accomplish this area. Make that decision. Make that decision the same way you'll decide to pray this afternoon. Make that decision the same way you'll decide to study the Bible. Make that decision the same way you decide to be a part of a small group and study the Bible together as a group and have somebody who will pray with you and have fellowship that encourages you and leads you in right directions, not in bad directions. Make it, make it that decision just like you make a decision to memorize a verse because generosity is an essential part of our discipleship who we are following Christ. I'm going to invite our worship team back up and we're going to conclude out with an awesome song that reminds us of the security that we have in Christ. But there's one other piece of bonus material I want to very quickly give you. We need as a church, and I'm not just saying us at First Baptist Church, talking all believers, all Christians, we need what we need in our families. In all the ways we can be generous, in the area of money, We need to normalize that conversation. Money still in 2021 remains one of the top five stressors in marriage. It's right up there. It's just as stressful to talk to your spouse about money as it is to deal with your in-laws, as it is to move, as it is to be laid off from work. And ironically, those other things tend to happen probably at the same time you need to talk about money and you're stressed out because Everybody, I'm, I'm assuming everybody, this is one of those times when you assume something about, you know something about yourself and you assume everybody else has the same struggle. We can start to have a conversation about money and the blood pressure just goes up. Not because, it's, and the truth is it's not that hard. We've been at this a while. We've got some, a lot of this figured out. But talking about money is hard. Talking about money in church is hard. We, we, you know, but we need to, because we need the encouragement to physically handle our lives, to deal with debt and to find ways out of it, to to deal with our expenses and the things that we need to do. And so in addition to these aspects of generosity, generosity means it becomes normal to talk about this, not awkward. And that's a part of what we've done in this series and we'll continue to do. We've done it in the past. We've provided financial resources. Um, Actually, we've provided multiple courses Uh, for young families and old families to deal with finances. Being a generous person means we do deal with those technical issues, but we also address the matter of our heart.